Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDNY podcast. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. You can listen to all of the past episodes by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, in 1945, a military bomber hits the Empire State Building. In 1970, a terrorist group launches a campaign of arson in New York City. And in 1992, Michael Judge is appointed as an FDNY chaplain. While those of us today will never forget the horror of two planes being flown deliberately into the Twin Towers in the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, in 1945, many New Yorkers thought that the same type of attack was happening on July 28th of that year. The war in Europe had just come to an end in May, but battles were still raging in the Pacific. So it was a time of uncertainty. Americans were still on edge, And as throughout the Second World War, they feared an attack might be made on our homeland, with New York City being thought of as a high-value target. July 28th was a Saturday. Many New Yorkers were off for the weekend. The weather was quite unpleasant, with heavy fog, clouds, and rain. Many people who worked or lived in Manhattan simply stayed home, and the city streets were quiet. At 8.42 a.m., a B-25 U.S. Army bomber departed Bedford Army Airfield in Massachusetts with three people on board. It was making a transport run to Newark Metropolitan Airport in New Jersey. Because of the poor weather, the pilot requested permission to fly with his instruments, but the request was denied, and he was ordered to fly under contact flight rules, meaning he had to stay in visual contact with the ground in no less than 1,000 feet altitude and must have at least three miles of forward visibility. The pilot's plan was to head for LaGuardia Airfield and, if the visibility got worse, once again request to complete his flight using instrumentation. Well, the weather did get worse, and he made his request to the air traffic controllers at LaGuardia. They instructed him to continue with the contact rules and, ironically, warned him that visibility over Manhattan was low and that he would be unable to see the 102-story Empire State Building. He thought with his plan to cross Manhattan above Central Park, he wouldn't have to worry about the building. Being disoriented by the fog, the experienced combat pilot mistook Roosevelt Island for Manhattan, and thinking that the East River on the west side of the island was the Hudson River on the west side of Manhattan, he turned south to head towards Newark. When the Empire State Building suddenly came into view, he attempted to turn, but it was too late. At 9.53 a.m., the plane hit the 78th and 79th floors. At the time of the crash, the Empire State was the tallest building in the world. On a usual weekday, there would be about 10,000 workers present. On that day, there were approximately 2,000. FDNY Division Chief Gerhard Bryant, quartered with Engine 24 just one block away, heard the crash, ran to the street, and saw fire emanating from the building. He responded immediately. Fortuitously, an FDNY lieutenant was on the corner of 5th Avenue and 30th Street 
and pulled fire alarm box 681, summoning the initial units under the command of Battalion 7 Chief Arthur Massett. Within eight minutes of the initial alarm coming in, Chief Bryan advanced the response to 2nd, 3rd, and ultimately 4th alarms. There was also a substantial EMS response of a dozen ambulances with 40 physicians and nurses. In addition to the fires in the building in the area of the crash as well as one in an elevator shaft, a section of the aircraft completely penetrated the tower and struck a residential building across the street, igniting a fire in the penthouse there. It's important to note that when the Empire State Building was being planned, the FDNY voiced concern over how they could fight a fire on its upper floors. Therefore, water pipes and stanchions, known as a standpipe system, were installed. This made it possible for the companies to extinguish the blazes remarkably quickly. Within 15 minutes of getting water on the flames, they were contained. The fire was declared under control within one hour. One only needs to recall the events of September 11, 2001, to appreciate this scene in 1945. An aircraft striking a building within one block of a firehouse that heard the crash. Civilians evacuating down the stairs as firefighters rushed up. Fuel and flaming debris setting fires in large areas of the building and in an elevator shaft, as well as a blaze in a nearby structure. A fire at a height never before battled by the FDNY. Fortunately, the death toll at the Empire State Building was kept low by the conditions of that day. 14 people, 11 in the building, and three on the plane perished. Another 25 were injured, some seriously. The building itself remained structurally sound, with repairs beginning immediately, allowing workers to return to their offices within days. As it has throughout its history, right up to today, the FDNY meets its challenges head-on, without hesitation, and with total commitment to saving lives and property in New York City. Hello everyone, I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. In 1969, an extremist militant group was formed in Michigan known as the Weathermen, and later as the Weather Underground. Their goal was to create a new political party to fight what they considered to be American imperialism. In 2018, the FBI used the term domestic terrorists in discussing them, a term we have become all too familiar with. Their method of choice for bringing their cause into view was bombings. In February 1970, the group launched a campaign of bombings with the intent of starting fires in New York City. The first were accomplished with Molotov cocktails, glass bottles filled with gasoline, a soaked rag protruding, would be ignited and hurled to explode into flames when they hit the intended target. The attacks occurred at the International Law Library of Columbia University at West 116th Street, at an Army and Navy recruiting station adjoining Brooklyn College, 
at the home of New York State Supreme Court Justice John Murtaugh on West 217th Street and upon an NYPD patrol car in front of the 9th Precinct, then located on Charles Street in the West Village. No one was killed in these bombings, but clearly they had the FDNY hopping. The most devastating explosion and fire caused by this group was unintentional. On March 6th of 1970, a building the group was occupying in Greenwich Village, their bomb factory, exploded. The initial responding FDNY units thought that the explosion was caused by a natural gas leak in the building. The damage was extensive, with the entire facade of the building gone. Hand lines were stretched into the townhouse, but ruptured gas lines fueled heavy fire. It took the rest of the day before the flames could be quelled. Certain clues led the NYPD to suspect that this explosion and fire was the result of a bomb being detonated. There wasn't just one explosion, as might be seen with a gas leak. There were three sequential explosions. Three people had been killed, but two had mysteriously escaped, and their whereabouts were unknown. Once the scene was under control, it was discovered that there was a cache of no less than 57 sticks of dynamite, four pipe bombs packed with dynamite, 30 blasting caps, and an anti-tank shell from the First World War. The bomb squad stated that had all of this gone off, it would have leveled the entire block of residential buildings between 5th and 6th Avenues. The Greenwich Village explosion did not stop the group's terrorist activities. In June, they planted a bomb in a second-floor bathroom at NYPD headquarters, injuring eight people. And they did much of the same in other cities around the country. All of this was occurring when the FDNY was experiencing what became known as the war years. It was a time of an unparalleled number of alarms that seemed to be at the two ends of the spectrum, either false or infernal-like conditions, in some of the poorest neighborhoods of the city. Beginning in October, the New York City Fire Museum will open an exhibition showcasing award-winning photographer Jill Friedman's moving collection of photographs documenting New York City firefighters on the job in the 1970s. Firehouse, the photography of Jill Friedman, will feature numerous images contained in Friedman's book, which was released in 1977 and garnered rave reviews, highlighting their honesty and grit that captured the danger, tragedy, heroism, and camaraderie of being a firefighter in New York City. To create this display of heroism and heart, Friedman lived among the firefighters in the Bronx and Harlem for more than a year as she chronicled their work. The photography of Jill Friedman will be on display from mid-October 2022 through April 2nd, 2023. Book your visit at nycfiremuseum.org. A boy by the name of Robert Emmett Judge and his twin sister were born in Brooklyn in 1933. No one could have guessed back then what an impact he would have on the FDNY, New York City, and the world. Today, we know him as Father Michael Judge. Being raised in a devoutly Catholic Irish immigrant family, Michael attended St. Paul's Parochial Elementary School and St. Francis Preparatory High School. In his youth, he would venture into Manhattan to shine shoes at Penn Station to bring in some extra money for his family after his father died. While there, he would often visit the parish of St. Francis of Azizi on West 31st Street. From an early age, he was on a course that would lead him to a devout life of faith and religion. 
He embarked on his formal studies to become a priest, finally culminating with his ordination in the Order of Friars Minor, also known as Franciscans, in 1958. He was assigned to several parishes and schools, ultimately winding up where it all began, at St. Francis of Assisi in 1986. By then, a firehouse had been built across the street as the quarters of Engine Company 1, Ladder Company 24, and Division 3. It had become his second home. In that same year, police officer Stephen McDonald was shot and rendered quadriplegic. Father Mike and Stephen became inseparable and even traveled the world together, preaching a message of peace. Michael was the consummate Franciscan. Friars take a vow of poverty. They own no personal possessions. It was the homeless, the penniless, the addicts, and in the 1980s, people with AIDS that were his ministry. His level of humanity was almost indescribable. Another friar at St. Francis was Reverend Julian Deacon. Father Deacon had been an FDNY chaplain since 1981. When he was diagnosed with cancer, he recruited Father Judge to assist him with his chaplain duties. When Reverend Deacon passed away, Judge was asked by the department to fill the vacancy. Although he was too busy to accept the appointment immediately, he did continue his role in ministering to members of the FDNY and eventually was fully appointed on February 24, 1992. His presence within the department was powerful and his ability to make deep connections with the firefighters was palpable. Like so many ceremonies over which he officiated, Father Judge celebrated Catholic Mass in the quarters of Engine 73 and Ladder 42 in the Bronx to bless the newly renovated firehouse. It was September 10th, 2001. The Mass was videotaped. The homily was prophetic. He spoke of the uncertainty that firefighters face when they respond to an alarm, never really knowing what will happen. The following day, at 8.46 a.m., terror struck in the form of a commercial passenger jet being flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Included in the massive FDNY response was Chaplain Michael Judge. His image was captured in a documentary being filmed by Jules and Gideon Nowday. He could be seen standing in front of the elevators in the lobby of Tower One in full bunker gear, his lips moving in quiet prayer. Moments later, the South Tower, Tower Two, collapsed, sending a torrent of steel, concrete, and glass into the very lobby where Judge stood. He, among others, was killed. The image of his lifeless body being removed from the scene has become iconic. As the first fatality to reach the New York City medical examiner, he was assigned victim number 0001. Faithful people agree that by being so designated, he ushered all the other souls lost that day into eternity. Michael Judge's legacy lives on in so many ways. Programs he initiated or worked with continue his work. Charities have been established in his name to fund projects and causes that were important to him. Monuments and memorials were created. Father Christopher Keenan, a close friend of Father Mike, was asked to fill the vacancy as FDNY chaplain. In the years that followed, Father Chris collected a wide array of artifacts from or related to Father Judge's life. The Father Michael Judge Archive is now housed at the New York City Fire Museum. 
the complete listing of its contents is accessible through the website of the Holy Name Province at hnp.org. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. When the FDNY band cut a record in 1923, what were the two songs they played? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. Next month, the week of October 9th through 15th, is National Fire Prevention Week. This is the time to make sure your home is fire safe, starting with changing the replaceable batteries in your smoke detectors. If you aren't already doing so, please test these devices monthly. Remember, only working smoke detectors can save a life. Also, have an escape plan so that if a fire breaks out, you and your loved ones know how to get out of the building, closing doors behind you as you leave, and have a designated meeting place outside. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Until next time, thank you and stay safe.